This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Last nine, you're tuned to 102.7, 3 triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Angeline Charles. And we are the program about all things wet and salty. We are. We and are. Happy Earth Day, I wanted to say. Ah. For yesterday. We can, like, make it Earth Weekend. We perhaps. could, yeah. Earth yeah. Weekend, that's right. Excellent. Earth is so big, we could do that. <laughs> we should really make it Earth Year. That's right. <laughs> Every year. Maybe it should be Earth Life then. Yes. Because we need it. Hey, yeah, we do. Hey, thanks, Tim, very much. Thank you, uh, Alexandre. That was so lovely, listening to the accents. It was beautiful, wasn't Absolutely it? Absolutely amazing. Followed up by Edith. Thank you, Edith, for things to do today. Um, you can catch Alexandre playing at the retreat at 3pm this afternoon. Amazing. I don't know if you heard the flute he was playing um, live. Oh, it was um, it was absolutely incredible. What a talented musician. So there you go. That would be a lovely thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Hmm. Very nice. Today's program, we have, uh, we're kicking off with some news. We are indeed. Uh, I've got a few bits and pieces just to mention from the Dolphin Research Institute that's come out. Um, you've got a whole lot of stuff, Angeline. I do. I'm going to talk about... Uh a diver's worst nightmare, which, I, which uh, is a very interesting story coming out of Spain, and about seaweed and cows. Oh, cool. Who'd have thought I could just weave cows into this program? But I've worked out a way. Cows, as in not with the not the not the no not the not the township, not the no. holiday destination. No, but those things that wander around in paddocks that uh, are people eat. Cool. Or uh, a door. Or a door. Or milk. Yes. Or other things. Yes. Yep. Or just admire. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, great. We're then going to cross to speak with uh, P.T. Hirschfield. She was on the program last week uh, introducing the subject of um, the, the problem with uh, rays and all kinds of different types People of rays. being very unkind to them. That's right. Um, and just wanting to bring it to attention. And uh, we had said at the end of our chat with PT that we would catch up with her in a few weeks, but things have kind of gone gangbusters in the last seven days. So we're just going to cross and speak with her uh, on the phone just for five minutes or so, around 9.25. Then uh, in studio, we are very excited to have with us uh, Dr. Rebecca Spindler. Uh, she has recently um, commenced a new role with Bush Heritage, but she's um, just come from quite a long stint at Taronga Zoo as the Director of Conservation and Research with a specific um, focus on coral conservation. So uh, she was she was in Melbourne yesterday and took part in the March for Science. We're going to talk to her about coral research and coral conservation, but also uh, the march uh, from the perspective of someone particularly interested in what's going on in the Great Barrier Reef but elsewhere around the world. Excellent. Mm. I, th I think it would be a really fantastic outcome out of that march if people made an, an inventory of all the way science has influenced our lives and made it what it is today. And I think people, you know, people who are not scientists uh, and not knowledgeable scientifically would be surprised how much of our lives has come from science. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. Some of the placards demonstrated that. I don't know if you've seen some of them. I haven't. No, I was uh, a little bit busy yesterday. I've got I've got some examples, which I've um, obviously this is radio, but I'll, I can read out what they say. And um, some of them were very clever, as you would expect from from a bunch of incredibly intelligent of people gathering. <laughs> some of them were very amusing as well. Then Rex is coming in. He's going to talk to us about. He's actually just come back from sailing on a square rigger called Tenacious from Sydney to Melbourne. So a different type of. Um, of Sydney to Melbourne, yep. only racing against himself or probably not racing at all. Uh, so we'll find out what a square rigger is. I actually don't know what a square rigger is. I'm assuming it's a, an old kind of wooden boat. I'm assuming so too. I like the name Tenacious though. I was wondering, I just want to know if Jack Black was, Jack... Um, Sparrow? Sparrow, no, not Sparrow. <laughs> you know, Tenacious D, the the band, yeah. Uh, yes, Jack Black, whether he was on board. Nice. Yeah. There you go. That's our program. Oh, he's also going to give us an update on, um, I don't know if you remember, at our outside broadcast, he mentioned that he had finally discovered a wreck he'd been looking for a long time off Safety Beach. Yeah. So he's going to give us an update on that as well. Interesting. Quick weather report. Heading for a top of 22 today, partly cloudy, areas of morning fog, 30% chance of a shower in the late morning and afternoon, more likely over the southern suburbs and light winds. Tomorrow, 22, early fog showers increasing, uh, rain at times for Tuesday and 19, and then we plunge down to 15 on Wednesday, shower or two. That feels like more kind of mid-autumn. And likewise for Thursday, 15 and a possible shower, 18 for Friday and a possible shower, and then 17 on Saturday. So today and tomorrow are going to be the warmest two days for the next seven by the look of it. The tide times, uh, if you're out on the waters today, down at the heads, we are heading for a low tide uh, at 1.20pm. That's probably the only one of relevance. We did have a high tide at 10 to 8 this morning. And the surf uh, is easing onshore winds, building swells, creating a reasonable day of waves across Victorian beaches. Water temperature is 17 degrees. Down at the island, uh, Smith's Beach is the peak of the island this morning, down on the Mornington Peninsula. Nothing especially great today, but Portsea will have workable 1.5 metre waves early and on the surf coast, improving surf all day, pushing above one metre by the afternoon at Bells Beach.
So that's good. Hmm. Got a quick bit of news. I've got a quick bit of news. I you have go got first. a quick bit of news. Uh, there's a, a beautiful uh, movie that's going to come out this year called Wonders of the Sea and it's co-directed by Jean-Michel Cousteau and Jean-Jacques Mantello. Uh, and it's been filmed over three years from Fiji to Bahamas and it takes um, the audience on a journey to discover the ocean while also they really want to educate people about the risks that the ocean uh, faces. But the interesting thing about this is it's going to be narrated by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, really? (laughs) Which I thought was a really unusual choice. It is. But Arnie is a bit of a conservationist. Right. He, uh, when he was the governor, he certainly put a lot of environmental legislation through and uh, he does take this approach in his life. He's, he does a lot of campaigning about um, people reducing the amount of meat that they eat. He does drive a Hummer, but it's on biofuels. He's had it converted. Uh, and I kind of wondered, yeah, <laughs> I wondered how he's going to go with the narration, whether he's going to drop some lines in from his uh, famous movie career. You know, I was thinking, oh, it's to. not a tuna. You know? <laughs> 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 yeah. Or hasta la vista, barracuda. Nice. Is it going to be like that or serious? I'm sure it'll be serious. Yeah. Did you? There was a, a doco done a few years ago that Jim Carrey narrated. I can't quite remember which one it was and it didn't really work for me. Nerida? That was the one at IMAX, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I yeah. can't was, quite Was it Oceans? Might have been. And um, didn't do it for me. The visuals were incredible. The, the images and the photography was spectacular, the cinematography. But the narration... Oh. Is that just because you kept associating his voice with something else? <laughs> I think so. But, I mean, you could... It was very... That, that film was very much directed at children. Well, maybe that yeah. was it. <laughs> it was, it, well, it seemed to be like that, that sort of... Uh, child to teenager yeah it was the the level of the dialogue wasn't really no adult or or maybe a generalist audience yeah um without kind of any real call to arms or anything like that but i think this one will work because you'll still have the associations with arnie but i think i don't know i think it'll work this time i hope this isn't that a tuna (laughs) it was under the sea 3d oh there you go yeah Yeah. i mean it was it was great it was really interesting but it was just that narration element that just didn't work for me Cool. So what's where, what's the timing on this? Uh, sometime in 2017. This is actually a 3D movie as well. Oh, cool. Uh, and I'll put it, there's a little YouTube uh, clip of it. And the, the although I will say the photography is absolutely spectacular. Uh, so we'll put that on our Facebook page if Great. you want to get a sneak peek of it. No narration from Arnie though, but he does... He does talk about his uh, insp- how he was inspired when he saw the footage and why he wanted to do it. Excellent. I'll look forward to that. That'll be great. It will be. I've got um, a bit of novelty news and then we're going to play a track. Um, there has been a shrimp. Now, apologies, by the way, if this has already been covered by um, by perhaps Anthony and Dr Beach while I was away. I don't think it has been because it's, um, it's come out relatively recently. Uh, a shrimp named after Pink Floyd. Fantastic. Have you heard about this? I have, actually. So this is pretty cool. It's a shrimp with a bright pink claw, um, recently discovered in the Pacific Ocean and named after Pink Floyd. So it's been called the Pink Floyd Pistol Shrimp, discovered by a team of scientists from Seattle University, Oxford University Museum of Natural History and Brazil's Universidade Federal de Goya. I'm totally guessing in the pronunciation <laughs> there. Um, and its, uh, it's, it's scientific name is uh, Sin Alpheus Pink Floyd Eye. Now, is the connection the pink claw or that they love Pink Floyd? It's, it's, well, it's kind of three things. It's the pink claw. Yep. Um, it's the fact that they do love Pink Floyd, but it's also the sound that it makes. So they're kind of equating it to a real, because um, it's huge, 210 decibels. 
Wow. So uh, when it when it um, it creates this high pressure, I'm reading from the press release, high pressure cavitation bubble that when collapses produces a sonic blast that can reach 210 decibels, powerful enough to stun and even kill its prey. For a split second, the imploding bubble also generates temperatures of 4,400 degrees centigrade, which is nearly as hot as the surface of the sun. So the head researcher at Oxford University Museum, um, Sammy DeGrave, has uh, said he's been listening to Floyd since the wall was released in 1979 and this new species of pistol shrimp was the perfect opportunity to finally give a nod to my favourite band. How cool is that? That is fantastic. It's not the first time that um, some new discoveries have been named by taxonomists after their favourite band. There's a there's a uh, Mick Jagger named uh, Moth, I think it might have been. More recently, um, as no, the species of moth was named after Donald Trump because it had extremely small genitals, apparently. <laughs> That's recent. <laughs> I would have thought with it being so loud that they might have named it after Spinal Tap because, you know, everyone oh, knows nice. they're the loudest band in the world. Because they go up to 11. <laughs> Maybe we can put that out to our own taxonomists. <laughs> we should. For, and it, <laughs> there you go. If you're listening, Museum Victoria. We want something named after Spinal Tap. This is Radio Marinara. Time for some news. Time for some news. I'm going to talk about cows. I know, how marine are they? Marine cows. Uh, Well, CSIRO research um, have worked out that if you feed cows seaweed, you can reduce their methane emissions quite significantly, in fact. Really? Yes. So... Because and that, and why is this a problem? Because agriculture contributes fifteen percent of Australia's overall greenhouse gas emissions, and approximately seventy percent of that comes from sheep and cattle. So, you know, that'd be a good chip away if you could get get rid of that contribution. Uh, and so, the CSIRO Lansdowne Research Station, west of Townsville in North Queensland, is going to be running this trial, and they've got a, a special diet that they've made up of the, for the cows, which will be uh, barley and molasses and seaweed. And that kind of tells me, if they put molasses in, it probably tastes terrible. Mm. <laughs> so they need to con the cows into eating it. Um, <laughs> And it, which I, I think you're this, probably right. I would suspect it is. And uh, they think if they can they can get a 60% methane reduction for a 1% diet of seaweed, uh, 2% gives a 70% reduction and 3% gives an 80% reduction. So. Oh, it's interesting. I can see all kinds of issues arising in terms of the treatment of the animals because that would then require them to be in a kind of environment where they weren't eating grass or is this like a supplementary well, I don't thing? Know. Or? They don't say whether it's uh, their entire diet or whether it's a supplement that they give to them that they just eat, need to eat. Well, 3% of your diet will still means you're eating 97% of something else. That's right. So presumably they're still eating grass or other okay. um, feed. Um, and they're interested in seeing this as, as well as reducing methane gas. If cows aren't emitting so much gas then that energy uh, could go into their their weight gain so that they could actually the cows could put on weight um, faster instead of uh, giving you know letting that go as gas Um, and so it's got a it's got a few benefits and they're interested in and following it through the the only sort of hitch to this of course is that the sort of quantities of um, seaweed that they're going to need for all the cattle in australia there's 30 million cattle in australia that's more than people currently there's 24 million of us so that's a huge quantity of seaweed and the seaweed that they're getting at the moment for the trial is being hand-picked ah yes so by divers oh 
Really? So, well, obviously we couldn't handpick seaweed for 30 million cows, <laughs> so we'll, someone would need to start harvesting that commercially, well, um, growing and, and harvesting And it. here's the question, if we're going to be harvesting seaweed, maybe it would be put to an alternative use, such as uh, a food supply for ourselves. Um We've already had somebody ringing in. I'm, I'm. <laughs> this is kind of. This is. It's very interesting, but uh, yeah. Oh. Well, I wondered if if they how much research they've put into the types of seaweed that you could get cattle to eat because there's quite a number of pest species that we have. Yeah. That that could be used. Uh, they could could give cattle. But anyway, I guess you need to know that it's going to work first before you worry too much about how you're going to supply I, them. I can see all sorts of other applications for if we are able to get up a, a seaweed harvesting um, market or industry rather than feeding it to the cows. There's all sorts of other things we could be doing it. There is. The one concern I have is what is it going to taste like, the beef? Is this going to be like beef sushi or... Or maybe we should just not eat the cows in the first place. Well, that's another <laughs> thought, but let's get real because people are still going to do it. Well, that's true. So you've just got to work out how to make it oh. uh, have a less impact on the environment. Very interesting. I, I thought that was a really great story. It is. It is. It's really interesting. It is. It, it, look, it, anything that is going to prompt support for um, for seaweed industry, a local seaweed industry, so we can actually yep. start using our own seaweed for, for sushi or for other sorts um, or other sorts of... Uh, Supplements. Yeah. Better that we can we can do it mm. ourselves. Now, my next thing is a, is a story about a diver's worst nightmare, and this is about a Spanish diver who was trapped in an underwater cave for 60 hours in an <gasps> air pocket. Oh, my God. When you said diver's worst nightmare, I thought this is going to be interesting because I think a lot of divers will probably have their own version of what a worst nightmare yeah. is, but I reckon you're right. This yep. probably is the worst nightmare. In darkness. Yep. In complete oh. darkness. It's uh, about 40 metres deep, the, the cave that he was in. He was in these um, beautiful caves, the Cova Despont, Despont Caves, uh, which are on an island off Mallorca, and um, there's limestone caves. And they, they're they about three kilometres long, the cave system, and they go down to a depth of a, roughly about a kilometre. But he was only about 40 metres deep under the earth at that point. Jeez, that's pretty but deep. But he was uh, about a kilometre in, so he was in a significant way. And uh, they were diving, diving along, a pair of them. They were in, they were in a dive buddy pair. So th that's the uh, take-home message for you today is about having a buddy with you. Uh, when their guideline ripped, broke uh, on a rock and snapped, and he, and he managed to get the rest of the two ends and join it back up together. But when he did that, they'd run out of, they would almost run out of oxygen and there was only enough oxygen for one of them to return. So they decided to dive, to dive in a bit further and they found this big cavern that was about... Uh, 100 metres long. When we say oxygen too, with diving, it's it's usually compressed air. But with cave diving, there is an oxygen mix. It's like a specific type of mix, I think. Or maybe yeah, that's just for deep diving. They don't say what they were using, but basically... Heliox, I think, used to be used. It's so long since I've they, done There like wasn't that. enough of whatever they had for right. both of them to get back. So he found this big cavern. It was about 100 metres long and 40 metres wide. And he gave the rest of his remaining oxygen to his dive buddy and uh, said, you take this and go back and get help. And, and just to point out, too that these were um, just not your this this guy's an underwater archaeologist they weren't just your average no. <laughs> random divers they're quite experienced he's in his 50s he's very uh, well known over in Spain and uh, so he sent his buddy back and he spent the 60 hours there wondering whether 
his mate was ever going to come back. But he did get to the surface and get help. But unfortunately, um, there was very poor water quality that happened for about 15 hours after he returned where they couldn't see yeah. further than 100 metres. So they couldn't. They knew they couldn't come back and find him in the cave. So they had to wait. And he was just lying there in the dark, only turning his torch battery was running out, only turning it on to drink out of this small pool of water that he found that was dirty but better than nothing, or, or to go to the, the bathroom, so he said, and and just basically lying there in the dark waiting, wondering what was going to happen. That would just have to be sheer torture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they came back and found him and um, had some tanks of oxygen and, and brought him back, but he had to swim for an hour and a half to get back to where he was. That's how deep he was in this cave system. Wow. But uh, I just and thought that was just the most... <laughs> that would have been oh, the yeah. most horrifying experience ever. But, but completely awesome that, A, they were diving in pairs and his yep. buddy made it back and was able to help him. Happy ending. Yeah. Totally just, yeah. That'll make you rethink your priorities after that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Angeline. <laughs> that has just sent every single hair on my neck <laughs> standing up. I don't think it's going to be... I don't think I'm going to relax for some time after that. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.7 3 R. <sighs> I hope we have that on every show for th- like ever. I think we should. Yep. Let's do that. I think we should. Uh, it is 9.28, coming up to 9.29, you are listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R. We had a caller who rang in Angeline, recommendation for Pink Floyd, track Echoes on the album Metal. Oh, has whale sounds all the way through. Thank you Fantastic. for calling in. We'll That's great. I have to pull that out and play it. I thought that caller might have been someone upset about the cows, but they were <laughs> ringing in about Pink Floyd. Oh, I'm relieved. Thank you. Hey, without further ado, we're now going to cross to PT Hirschfield, who's going to give us an update on what's happening with her project uh project banjo i'm sure i've butchered the name hi pt hi bron hey thanks thanks for coming back Um, i mentioned at the start of the program we were planning on catching up with you in a few weeks but things have kind of gone gangbusters since you were in last week what's what's happened since then yeah, so just to remind uh, listeners who may not have heard last week, um, the summary of the issue is that we're really concerned as a, a local and tourist community about the treatment of wanted and unwanted rays, big rays and rays, and how they are treated um, in, in certain circumstances. Sometimes they're stabbed in the head, thrown back, which is illegal. If they're not wanted, they can't do that to them. Um, and some of the larger rays are having their, their wings cut off and, um, you know, they're, they're iconic to um, these peers, their resident rays, much loved by people. So there's been a lot of feedback and a lot of talk in the community. Um, also some talk that within the fishing community that some of the big ray wings are sometimes even being sold in restaurants as sea scallops or calamari, which potentially poses some issues of legality. And so to deal with all of this, we're really campaigning as a group um, to ban the killing of rays in Port Phillip Bay. And since to you last, there's been a lot of media attention in the Herald Sun, Mornington Peninsula Leader, Peninsula News, Mail Online, um, also on radio ABC with Raf Epstein. Um, and on that particular program, we had a very positive response um, from the, the Executive Director of Fisheries, Travis Dowling, um, Fisheries Victoria. And it looks like we'll have the opportunity to meet with him in person over the next week to discuss that further. Plus, we've got 
um, more attention from media lined up. And within our own group, we've seen the Pro Banjo Action Group rise to over 500 members who are all really proactive people. And any listeners of Radio Marinara who are in to get on board with that are invited to do so. But we've also set up a petition on a public page called Raise Awareness. And just in a very short period of time, we've had over 2,000 people sign that. So we would love your listeners to um, sign and share that petition amongst their own networks, particularly through social media, and to consider whether or not they'd like to be more actively involved beyond the petition through the Project Banjo Action Group. That's amazing, PT. When, when I mean, we've been doing this program for 20 years and we've covered a lot of campaigns over that time and what you've been able to achieve in one week is just extraordinary. I know the project's been running a lot longer than that, but from, uh, from sort of really your first uh, exposure of this issue via media last week to what, what's happened in one week is just extraordinary. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. Um, and uh, for Marinara, we've got, uh, I think we're very, getting very close to 1,000 followers on our Facebook page. So those people will see uh, a link to your action group and to that petition. Um, you mentioned you've got a meeting coming up this week with the uh, Executive Director of Fisheries Victoria. What do you hope will come from that? So we, we feel that the positive um, feedback that we've had from Travis Dowling um, has been really encouraging for us to look at ways that we can move forward and work together um, to, to see that change come about for the welfare of the raise and also for the local and tourist communities. So uh, just looking at basically, I think, what the, the implications and logistics and benefits to all involved will be of having that ban introduced. And um, in addition to Travis Dowling, I know that there are quite a few um, very powerful people within um, that side of the industry who are very much aware of and discussing this issue as well. So um, I, as you said, I think that... It, the fact that it's grown so quickly um, is probably in relation to the fact that people have already been thinking about these problems and what needs to be done about them, both, you know, at, at ground level, you know, amongst divers, but potentially also um, higher up in terms of decision-making as well. So I guess it's about coming to the, the table together and, and seeing what, what needs to be done, what can be done and what sort of time frames things might be able to be done in. So... Um, after that meeting, I'm sure we'll know more and be able to report back in more detail. Fantastic. Thanks so much, PT. We'll let you go for now. And uh, we'll. Um, I think we should catch up with you next week and find out how things went. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks, PT. Bye. Bye for now. Uh, yes, PT Hirschfield and that group, Project Banjo Action Group, will put a link to their Facebook page on our Facebook page. It's a closed group, but if you, uh, if particular, I'm sure if you mention you're a Marinara listener and you want to join that group and find out more and um, continue to stay aware on on this issue and how it progresses, uh, that'll be great. All right, it's 9.34. Radio Marinara is the name of this program. In just a minute, Dr Rebecca Spindler is coming in. She's going to be talking to us about what happened yesterday at the March for Science. She's, uh, if you missed the start of the program, been doing a whole lot of work in the coral conservation area of research. So um, wanting to, we're really looking forward to speaking with her about that as well. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en 3 triple R. Indeed you are. 
It's uh, coming up to 9.38. It is 9.38. And yes, this is Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Now, yesterday, thousands of scientists and their supporters took to the streets in Melbourne and around the country to march for science and urge governments, present and future, to enable scientists just to get on with the job of doing science. Dr Rebecca Spindler marched yesterday. She's Executive Manager, Science and Conservation at Bush Heritage Australia. And she's recently also been working with world-leading coral scientist Dr Mary Hagedorn on the Great Barrier Reef Coral Conservation Project. So she really had something to march for yesterday. It's with great pleasure we now welcome Dr Rebecca Spindler to reflect on yesterday's gathering, what it means and where she sees the future of Australian marine science. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. How Dr Spindler. <laughs> shall we be upfront about this? Yeah, I think we should. We went to uni together. Yes. And again, I'm, I'm ready for, you know, for a small donation to Bush Heritage. I am ready to tell outrageous stories of <laughs> Bush's at Bronze uh, uh, University days. <laughs> I've only got $40 in my purse. (laughs) (laughs) Something can be arranged. We have payment plans. Excellent. Now, we haven't seen each other for about 20 years, we realise. Not face to face, that's right. That's because you've been extremely busy in that time. And I'm going to go through now. Um, I was actually stalking you on LinkedIn last night, which you'll know because that's how (laughs) LinkedIn works. You've got an incredibly broad scientific repertoire. So um, in terms of uh, providing comment on the march yesterday, you have done a lot of research with coral conservation, but I'm just going to mention some of the other things. Developing uh, developed novel embryo culture systems to improve reproduction of rare and endangered species, helped establish giant panda reproductive management and liaise with Chinese colleagues and officials for many of the Smithsonian China program, China Smithsonian's China programs, established the Smithsonian's Neotropical Carnival Initiative with colleagues from Brazil and collaborated on a multidisciplinary project aimed at pr- improving the health, reproduction and conservation of jaguars and on top of all of that you're also you've been plunging into coral conservation projects yeah and that was that was actually so that stops about I should update that um that stops about 10 years ago when I came back to Australia so for the last 10 years I was actually working up in Taronga Zoo yes as uh, head of science up there and managed an amazing multidisciplinary program that I'm super proud of up there as well can you tell us a little bit about that Sure. So we started with a few scientists that were quite focused on the zoo and the animals there and their welfare and and um, health, really. There was always been an extremely strong wildlife health program at Taronga. And over the 10 years, we built a lot of disciplines around that. There has always actually been a really strong marine science program. And we strengthened a lot of those disciplines, made them much more integrated and built. Uh, so we now have, I think, about... 14 scientists, all working in across the different disciplines, so marine science, terrestrial ecology, conservation biology, wildlife health, reproduction, genetics, behaviour, everything. So we can pull any one of those different or any number of those different disciplines together to answer any environmental question. And the groups are, are extraordinarily field focused and really understanding what's going on out in the wild. And a lot of that actually incorporates um, using the animals at the zoo as translators for what's going on out in the wild. In fact, one story that you at Marinara listeners might be particularly interested in, we have our marine scientist who has CDT trackers, conductivity, depth and temperature trackers that give us oceanographic information stuck on little penguins and fur seals and sea lions travelling around off the coast of New South Wales, but we also have accelerometers on them accelerometers are the things in your iPhone that tell you whether you're pointing up or shaking or running or doing whatever it is that you're doing so that your Fitbit can tell you whether you've used enough calories for the day. 
but they also tell us what's going on out in the wild. So you will be very familiar that as soon as you try and track an animal underwater mm. that's in the marine environment, you're either on the surface and you can't see what they're doing because of the the barrier there or you're in the water and they've left you for dead right because they're just racing away so trying to track behavior of animals in a marine environment is really hard Mm. Um, these accelerometers send back electronic signals that are based on the movement of the animals because we have the same accelerometers on the animals in the zoo we can look at that electronic signal and the animal and go right that electronic signal means he's bolting for food or he's caught food and he's trying to swallow it or he's trying to kill the prey or whatever, whatever it is, we can now translate all of those electronic signals that we're bringing in millions of every day and know what the behaviour is of those animals out in the wild. That's extraordinary. There's some amazing footage that um, I've spotted on social media this week of, uh, I think it's a humpback whale in Antarctica. I don't know if you've seen this, but it has, it's it's a visual. So there's a camera, it's like a GoPro or something yeah. on, on its back. And it, it it's like you're on top of this whale going in and out of the water. And whale cam. Very well, cool. Yeah, well, there you go. Fascinating. Yeah, it's very good. So I should say we're, we're doing that work with Macquarie University. Right. Fantastic collaborators. Excellent. Um, can you tell us a bit about the coral conservation work that you've done? So um, I mentioned the uh, scientist who you were working with. Mary Hagedorn, yeah. She's yes. an absolute star. So she, we met at the Smithsonian when I worked there um, and we never worked together but we were always side by side and always really wanted to work with one another. When I moved out to Australia, she coincidentally moved out to Hawaii. In fact, she moved out to Hawaii a couple of years before I moved back to Australia and um, moved from fish reproduction and cryopreservation to coral, really figuring that this was one of the key ways that we needed to try and cryopreserve our coral reefs and and work in an integrated way as, as part of the conservation tools. Cryopreservation... It doesn't is not going to be a be all and end all in terms of conservation in and of itself. But when you put it into a, a larger toolkit, mm. it gives you a longevity in terms of genetic diversity. Right. Are you snap freezing bits of animals so to preserve their DNA, or are you snap freezing sort of embryonic stages, or all of that? So right. we we started out with the gametes because they're the easiest cells to to cryopreserve of any species, really. Yep. Gametes being the sex cells. Yes, yeah, sorry, so eggs and sperm. Yep. So eggs we can't do right now because coral are absolutely enormous and they're filled with lipid and for all sorts of physical reasons, physics reasons, that makes them very, very difficult to cryopreserve. So we started out with sperm and embryos because once the eggs have divided, they've cleaved a few times, the surface area makes it much more manageable right. in terms of cryopreservation. So we had to work with spawn. Every year, wherever it is that we're working, we had to work with the spawn. We're now, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that reproduction has plummeted around the world in coral because of the global bleaching events and the general health of coral, the coral just are not reproducing. And that's some of the work that we've just um, finished looking at in French Polynesia. But we're moving away and, and looking at microfrags, so exactly what you were saying. So, the, so we're taking individual polyps now and trying to figure out how to cryopreserve those individuals in combination with some coral gardening and, and nursery building that we've been doing a lot of in the last little while. We can now thaw those uh, fragments, put them on a nursery, and it's actually built like a tree, right. coincidentally, just because that's the way it works. And they can, they will actually grow, develop, and be reproductive within a couple of years. It's working incredibly well. Wow, great hope for future. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a at the moment, 
obviously everything will stay cryopreserved in liquid nitrogen for thousands of years if we need them. It is both a short-term and a long-term measure, though, and yeah. if we don't sort carbon, it'll all be lost. Yeah, that's right. And um, really fascinating. It's almost like it's a it's a complementary measure to the seed bank idea it's, that exists. That's exactly right. It's yeah. a seed bank for coral. Yeah, cool. Now, can we talk a bit about yesterday's march? Sure. Um, what was the let's let's talk through it. Uh, the feel of the crowd. I've seen some images and read through some of the reports. Yeah. Um, Talk us through it. How was it? It was really fantastic. So it started out being a fairly modest crowd and I was I was a little bit dismayed actually that, you know, there there weren't more people interested in science and thinking that it was worth getting out of bed on a on a Saturday. But by the time the speeches were sort of rocking along, everybody rocked up and I, and I would say easily thousands, so three-ish probably, thousand people. Which is not bad. Um, Melbourne's a is a really active, protesting city, so it's sort yes. of it's nice to get everybody out there. I'll go to the opening of an envelope, so I'm I'm ready to protest for anything. But it, the crowd was lovely. It was it was actually quite hard to hear the first set of speeches, but that meant that people would just turn to one another and have a bit of a chat. Yeah. And every, we were sort of, you know, swapping hand signals about each other's signs. And it was an incredibly lovely, friendly, just happy, happy. Affirming. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to protest. It's nice to sort of walk and march for something yeah. rather than against something. Yeah. So I think, I think that helped a lot. There were a lot of non-scientists in the crowd, which was really lovely to see. Mm. You sort of sidled up to people and said, so where do you work and what do you do? And very often it was just, you know, Mrs Brown coming up because she agrees, you know, this is really important. That's fantastic. And lots of kids there as well. Lots of kids and a couple of dogs. Future scientists. Yeah, dogs that would all bark on cue. As soon as everybody was clapping, the dogs were barking as well. <laughs> it was great. Now, um, Associate Professor Stuart Khan, he was one of the organisers of the Sydney March because, of course, yesterday's march in Melbourne was one of many around the country yeah. and it's global as well. Yeah. He was quoted in an ABC report saying, the marches were calling on politicians to take note that the public wanted policy based on fact. I was a bit surprised about that. I would have thought that was a given. Maybe that's just my naivety. I would have thought that it was pretty much a given that people want policy based on fact. Does it just need to be spelled out, do you think, sometimes? I think it needs to be spelled out to the politicians. Mm. And that's one of the really great things, actually, is to see politicians both speaking and marching with us yesterday. Um, But you look at where we're going, particularly in America, but I don't think Australia is immune from it. What we're not... So the politicians are not so much worried, and Barry Jones made this point, that politicians are not so much worried about what's correct or factual these days, it's what's going to sell. And instead of educating people into acting the appropriate way, given the policy that makes sense because it's based in evidence... We just tell people what they want to hear. Mm. Uh, he, he also said, this is Dr Khan, we're calling on politicians to make laws that are based on evidence that are appropriate for our future. Disease, famine, communicable disease, pollution of the oceans, climate change, all of these challenges are addressable by science. There are some sensational placards and um, I just did some screen dumps and I'll just read them because you don't, you can look for these yourself. Um, what do we want? Evidence-based policy. When do we want it after peer review? Going Which back- makes for a really <laughs> hefty chant. <laughs> that's, 
That's been a, I've spotted that one. Um, a friend of mine from New Zealand posted some Im- images from some marches in Auckland, and, and that one that one's popped up everywhere. Yeah, I love yeah. that one. Scientists must be part of the solution. Solution contained within um, uh, like a beaker, I suppose. Yeah. Solution. Some great puns. Um, Mate, glaciers great again. I quite like that one. Um, got polio. Me neither. Thanks science. Um, and then or diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, measles, yeah. mumps, rubella, and so on. And um, and science because you just can't make poop up and it's actually got a little image of a little poop emoticon so um some fantastic um some t- fantastic images the, the my favorite one of all i think was um it was from a march i think in new york it was definitely in the u.s and it had a, a picture of a, a sign curve and the, the caption on it was protest sign s-i-n-e nice. yeah. yeah and then the one next to it had a picture of a cosine serve <laughs> curve and with um, protest cosine. Yeah. So. And I think the solution, I think, is, is really apt because I think that's why people were so happy, really. I think scientists are looking more and more for solutions. There's the odd boffin that really just wants to sit in the in the theoretical space and, and not interact with people. But I think given where we're going, the urgency with which we need to act now, mm-hmm. given climate change in particular, but really everything else you mentioned as well, is we are we've got to be looking for solutions. That's a very hopeful thing to be doing. And I think that's why the scientists are happy, chatty, friendly, lovely, because the more interactions we have, the more solutions come up. Thank you so much for joining us. My That's an pleasure. excellent note to end on. Now, um, you've joined Bush Heritage Australia. You're based in Sydney. I do, you mentioned when we had the previous track on that um, you're going to be in Melbourne. One week a month. Excellent. So we're going to get you in again. I'd love that. I'm looking forward to it already. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bron. Thanks, guys. Dr. Rebecca Spindler uh, from Bush Heritage Australia, but talking about the march yesterday and what's happening in global coral conservation research. It's coming up to 9.52. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. And uh, just got something to mention before we welcome Rex Hunter into our studio. Studio. This is Triple R's after April After Dark series. It returns this week. So a big week of live music from Performance Space nightly from 10pm. 22 acts over seven consecutive nights. Wow. From April 24th to the 30th. So kicking off tomorrow in celebration of April Amnesty. You can catch Hood Pass, Leisure Link, The Golden Age of Piracy, Son of Crawdaddy, sorry Max, How High the Moon, Live Wire and Teenage Hate all presenting shows live from the Triple R Performance Space. So uh, these 10pm programs have each curated a cracking night of live music they're going to set you on a nocturnal excursion uh, into the beating heart of our luminous local musical scene so the triple r bar will be up and running nightly thanks to mountain goat it all kicks off tomorrow monday april 24 so you can check out triple r website for the full after dark lineup and for more details on how you can be part if you're a subscriber uh, part of the audience for these shows so check out the triple r website Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Thank you, Wayne Lynch. Good morning, Rex Hunter. Oh, good morning, Bruno. It's relaxing then. <laughs> thanks for uh, now. I was going to say thanks for joining us, but you're... you're part of the team. You're part of the team. <laughs> part you, of the furniture. Now, you've been... Uh, since you were in last, you've had a bit of an adventure. You've been sailing from Sydney to Melbourne. Yeah, big adventure on the Tenacious. That's a sailing vessel run by the Jubilee Sailing Trust in the UK. Um, takes disabled sailors and all that. So paid my own way. sort of on the bucket list of things to do because I've been reading... <laughs> reading about square riggers and sailing ships, you know, over well over 40 years, so... So can you describe a square rigger? Well, a square rigger is basically 
they have squarish sails and oh, they okay. sails basically sail square the, to the wind, whereas a, a like a sloop or a, a little yacht can sail a lot closer. And they have four and a half sails. So the square relates to the shape of the sails. Well, obviously no, it's not going to have a to square the, hull. Um, oh, but square. The, the, the yards are square off the um, off the mast. Oh, the yards God. are horizontal beams. <laughs> a square hull. Yeah, I know. Square Sorry, <laughs> I was in jest. Yeah, I didn't really think it was a square hull. But um, but yeah, I I can I can get that image now of the the big square sails. Yeah, and and it. The, the, the way that they're crafted means that, as you're saying, that... They're limited in how close they can sail to the wind. So right. to get to somewhere in a square, it goes generally a longer a longer trip because you have to tack out a lot further and come back and with a sloop can sail, well, a lot closer to the wind. Yeah, most people would know the word sloop from the Beach Boys yeah. song <laughs> Sloop John B, which, of course, when Dr Surfers said he never, ever, ever wants us to... I think we've only ever played it once on this program. Very, very... I agree, Nerida. It is an awesome song. But anyway, it's iconic too. But uh, describe a sloop for us. Uh, just a single... Like a single-sailed, uh, single-masted vessel with, you know, one one mast, a little jib or something like that. I sound like a... <laughs> Captain Fairweather here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, but the difference between a square rigger and a sloop? It's, a, it's just a triangular-shaped sails, more or less. Okay, there you go. So talk us through the, the, the journey. Did you p- pull in at any marinas well, or stuff along the way? Well, we started off in Sydney. Mm-hmm. We went, went up there uh, sort of mid-March uh, a month or so ago. Um, sort of had a bit of a uh, induction and... Um, Got to climb the mast and all that, and sort of step out in the yard. So that was sort of a, a bit intimidating first off, because uh, yeah, you're like 20 metres above the water. Stepping out onto wow. a, a little foot rope and then shimming your way across, holding on very tightly in the process. Do, any safety harnesses? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah no, right. All safe. It's all your induction. If you don't want to go up, you don't have to. Yeah, but right. I mean, try and stop us. There's a couple of us. <laughs> you want to sleep up there? <laughs> yeah, stick a hammock up there? Yeah, it's virtually. It was just yeah, it was such a a thrill to be up there. Yeah, and mm. and so you went to Sydney. You took off from Sydney. Took or? off from Sydney, sailed out uh, Sydney under Sydney Harbour Ridge, out through the heads, turned right and headed for uh, Melbourne. But first, we we stopped at uh, Jarvis Bay mm-hmm. for a day or two. Um, uh, the, actually, the wind actually dropped right off. We were sailing down the coast. I sort of we we're on night shift because you run shifts like a, a proper ship. And then Australia was on the on say the starboard side, right hand side. Woke up in the morning like four hours later, and Australia was on the port hand side. So we'd actually spun around because the wind had dropped right off. Oh right, were you so kind of backwards. going in the wrong direction? <laughs> we're, we're, we're reversing our way to Jarvis Oops. Bay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and so then from Jarvis Bay, what, what was your next stop? Uh, Eden. Right. Sort of a, That's a long way. Town, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's much easier to fly. I don't know why you'd sail down there. <laughs> It's <laughs> not the point of the exercise, Rex. Of course. Yeah. And then so, um, from Eden going, obviously, around Green Cape. Yeah, yep. but uh, on the way, we, was, we were running a night. We were on the sort of 12 to 4 a.m. shift in the morning. We had the bioluminescence, if anybody watched awesome. David oh, nice. Attenborough a couple of weeks ago. We had exactly the same experience of the dolphins turning up and just lighting up the uh, the water. It was just phenomenal. I was going to ask you about the marine wildlife that you saw, but being at night, I suppose you might have seen less than the day shift. Well, well, again, we came across a pod of um, sperm whales. We're coming sort of probably oh. south of Malacuta or somewhere like that, probably 10 or 12 miles, nautical miles south of Mal- Malacuta. 
and we're coming along, we're sort of sailing and um, motoring because we'd run out of wind again. And, uh, and lo and behold, there was so sperm whales. Sperm whales were blowing the their pretty uncommon, snotty isn't it? stuff out there, the blowholes. <laughs> Spoken like a sailor. <laughs> and so we. The captain, the captain had a real dry sense of humour. He said, "He said, you quite often book these things, but they don't always turn up on time." Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, too. So we hung around with them for about, stopped the boat and hung awesome. around with them for about half an hour, an hour, taking photos and all that. And, nice. And then rounds with the, we continued on rounds with the prom. So we pulled in, up in Sealers Cove, and so we pulled up, clued up all the sails to the, the yards, and then we had to wrap. Ropes around are called gaskets. We had to put these gaskets around because there was a strong wind morning out, and we just finished putting the gaskets on. We were all up there tying it all up, nice and tight. And we got hit with 62 knots of wind and Ooh. sealers, so we were actually tilted the vessel to 22 degrees, which is a fair. Whoa. So we had to wow. brace the yards to bring it back to to a level position. When you said sealers, that sealers cove. Se- sealers cove, right, yeah, the prom, great. Yep. Prom's a great spot. Such, such a pretty little... So where were you on the boat when the wind hit? You weren't at the top of we the mast, <laughs> were you? <laughs> we just got de- gotten down from the uh, from the yards. They said, yeah, we'd be 20 metres up the air, you know, furling and sitting on the foot rope and passing the gasket around. and So awesome. uh, all that. And then we sailed round to Flinders from Flinders. We then came through the heads with the care of the Port Phillips Sea pilots who sort of provide free, free pilotage for the... Tenacious, which is pretty phenomenal, and then mm. up to up to Williamstown, and then um, Williamstown into the uh, Ann Street Pier. Very nice, and I bet you're happy to get home. Oh yeah, it's a great trip though, well worth it. Hey, Recommend it to anybody. Quick, quick summary of your safety beach discovery in about Safe, twenty seconds. Uh, twenty seconds. Well, I think it might be a, a wreck called the uh, Signet, which is eighteen seventy six. Oh, fantastic! So I've had wood samples taken. I've done. We've done some work and. Uh, Looking pretty well like it's the um, the signet at this stage, so that's pretty exciting. Brilliant. Um, what does the wreck look like? Is it just sort of just a, a pile bunch of rocks? Of, <laughs> a bunch of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty when, exciting though. <laughs> when you come back next time, you'll have an update on the wood samples and what they've revealed. Yep. Yep. For sure. Brilliant. Hey, thanks, Rex. No problems. Excellent. Bro. And thank you, Angeline. Thank you, Bron. Thank, thank you, Narada. And thanks, Kent. He's been taking your calls and uh, he'll have this show up as a podcast very shortly. Thanks also to Dr. Rebecca Spindler and to PT Hirschfield. On next week's program, um, we will have Dr. Beach in the house. Terry's coming in as well. And uh, Neil Blake, including a new uh, um, film clip they've released, um, trying to bring people's attention to the problem of litter, what happens when litter enters the marine environment. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Dr. Doolittle's coming in short. Uh, armed with a very large number of doctors and they'll take you through to 11 o'clock when Dr Shane and his crew will take over with Einstein and Gogo. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week. We'll catch you next week. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.